Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs, and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show follows my journey to interview a wide range of guests to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Hey, everyone. Jason here. Today's guest is Matt Rogers, the founder at Insight. I was particularly excited for this one because, like me, Matt's roots are on the technology side. He was an engineering leader at Apple at a very young age. He left to co-found Nest, which of course went on to have a huge acquisition by Google. And unlike so many other entrepreneurs who have big outcomes and then just proceed to go right back in and, and do it again, Matt's doing something different with Insight. He and his wife, Schwadi, founded the organization, and they're focused across three areas, people having an impact on innovation, people having an impact in the nonprofit sphere, and people having an impact in the political sphere. I find Matt to be incredibly inspirational because not only is he incredibly smart and accomplished and ambitious, but he's also super nice and humble. So I was excited for this episode, and Matt did not disappoint covered a number of topics, including his time at Apple and his time at Nest and the work that they're doing at Insight, including several of the companies and projects that they're involved with. We also took a step back and talked about climate change, the nature of the issue, and how people that are concerned might be able to help. I enjoyed this episode tremendously, and I hope you do as well. Matt Rogers, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. It's great to have you. I was excited about this one. I think, well, one... I've only gotten to know you recently, but for someone as accomplished as you, you're such a nice guy. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Although maybe I'm just getting to know you. So maybe that's just like a first impression kind of no, thing. That's, that's it's like, that's it's the like real don't thing. get to know your heroes. No, that's the real thing. Yeah. I mean, the other thing is that what I've found so far in this climate journey is that if you want to have an impact in any one area, it doesn't just touch one area. So if you want to have an impact on some aspect of decarbonization, like buildings or transportation or whatever. It's like there's an innovation component, there's a policy component, and there's a philanthropic component, right? Or grants or or that kind of thing. And and you're into all three of those. It's something we learned very early on. If you want to push for an impact or to push for a change, you need to use all the levers available. And there are a lot. And being up in Silicon Valley here, people often get really deep on the innovation lever. And a company is the way to solve a problem. And it is the way to solve a lot of problems, but it's not the only way. Before we get too far into it, you seem like a guy that likes to toot your own horn. No, I'm just kidding. You seem very humble. But I'd love to just talk a little bit about your past just so people know who we're talking to. So, I mean, just take me through how you got here in two minutes or less. I grew up in Gainesville, Florida. Uh -huh. so a small college town in the middle of the state. Fortunately, had access to a lot of great resources at the university. So got involved in robotics at a really young age. And What's a really young age? Like 15, 14? That's pretty young. Especially That's then? Pretty young. Although yeah. I thought I thought when I picked up lacrosse in junior high, that was a pretty young age. But my seven-year-old is like practicing every night in the backyard. So young is relative. Yeah, robots were not so cool back in the 90s <laughs> outside of science fiction. I always got involved early on with technology, fell in love, went to Carnegie Mellon to pursue my passion in robotics. And what I learned very quickly there is that there is a much broader approach to building things than just building robots. And at the time, especially around 2000, very hard to build a career in robotics. And one of my 
advisors recommended I come out to Silicon Valley and intern at Apple to learn how to build products. That's why you're still in school. Exactly, while I was still in school. And this professor, Yoki Matsuoka, convinced me to do it, moved out to, to California for a summer, interned in the iPod group, and fell in love. Like, holy shit, this is amazing. We could build things that millions of people use. What year was that? That was 2004. So it was a long time ago. So how long have the iPad, iPod been out at that time? So iPod came out a few years earlier. So it was like year three or four of the iPod. We had just, actually the summer I was there, we built the first iPod mini. And it's funny how we- t- Oh, we, I remember we, that. It was called the mini, but in hindsight, it was a brick. A year later, we did the nano. It was a lot better, actually. But I fell in love. I loved it. And they asked me to stay. Uh, they actually asked me to quit school and stay, but I, I actually I told them I have to finish. So I went back to CMU for another year, then returned to Apple in 2005 full time. So were you and were you working for Tony or? Yeah. So the, okay. Tony was the exec who ran the iPod team and was a good friend and mentor. So he was one of the ones who encouraged me really to to do it full time and to to jump in. So Tony was pushing you not to go back to school. <laughs> Indeed. That's very responsible. Uh, 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 no, no. Like, there have been a few cases of of folks who came before me who did that. And I just had, you know, Jewish parents from Brooklyn that they want me to finish school. So I returned to, to Apple. You got out, you went to law school, and the rest is history. <laughs> exactly. Right. Exactly. 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 <laughs> so I got to Apple in 2005 after graduating. This is the time when it was really Apple was hitting their growth and going from a company that had recovered to like one of the fastest growing public companies out there, you know, selling tens of millions of iPods. Mac was recovering very well. Like the company was really on an upward trajectory, that kind of right place at right time for me. We had just shipped the iPods that Christmas in 2005 when a Skunk Works project started, which was the first iPhone. And I was 21 at the time. And the story actually is really funny. Like my boss came to me and said, Hey, like there's this new project codenamed purple. No one really wants to work on it because they all want to work on this new iPod, but you know, like we'll put you on it. Like you're the young guy who doesn't really know what he's doing anyway. And it was awesome. Like it was a really fun experience building something from the ground up, building a team from the ground up and working with folks who had led, you know, building cell phones like the last 15, 20 years. So your first two products at Apple were the iPod and the iPhone, you personally? Yeah. Right place at right time. It's actually one of the reasons why I've built my career now on driving for impact. I was actually very lucky. Like, I feel like I lucked into the best places at the best times and kind of the pinnacle of my career was all based on luck. So like when you realize that you've built your career on luck and your wealth on luck, then you're much more willing and able to help others because you realize that like it's just chance on how he got here. Well, the only thing I would say though is that I think luck determines how quickly the current is moving. Luck doesn't determine how you paddle once once you get into the current. Uh, that's fair. That's fair. So you you need it, yes, right? Yes, you need it. Absolutely. It's it's necessary but not sufficient. Correct. That's true. So being lucky and being on this early team for the iPhone, I learned how to build products, how to learn how to build teams. And hired a ton of people into Apple to help on that journey. And really, I, I loved it. I mean, I spent the next several years building more iPods, more iPhones, and then the first iPad for Apple. But woke up one day realizing that I had to do more. And I was sitting in a review with Tony's successor at the time, discussing kind of the, the checkpoint on a new iPhone we were working on. And he was asking about graphics performance and how it was doing with some video game. It was either Angry Birds or Fruit Ninja at the time. And 
I kind of looked around the room and there's all these brilliant engineers kind of at the peak of their careers and they were obsessing over Angry Birds or Fruit Ninja. And I always said, gosh, this seems like... Isn't that a metaphor for all of Silicon Valley? Exactly. This is this is my wake up. I was like, this can't be what we work on. And we've got to work on something that's much more impactful. You cannot have the best engineers in the world tied up working on video games. So that's when I kind of pivoted my brain and said, hey, like, what are things I could do that apply all these skills and the talents that we developed at Apple on something that's much more impactful? And I spent some time walking around the house and talking to a friend who was walking around his house. And then we realized, hey, like, there's a massive opportunity in the home to make homes more energy efficient. And that's how we started Nest. So how does walking around in a house lead you to energy efficiency? You hit your head in the shower. No, it's actually much more obvious than that. So I was living in a condo in Los Gatos, down, down near Apple in Silicon Valley. And it was built in like 1973. Uh-huh. And it was very clear that it was built in 1973. Like we had renovated and put in new floors and new countertops. But there are still like beige plastic things controlling heating and air conditioning, you know, beige plastic on the ceilings, beige plastic everywhere. And we had just built iPhone 4, which is like the most sleek product ever. It's like brilliant glass and and, and aluminum. It's just like, it's a beautiful product. But yeah, like we had this beige crap on our walls at home controlling something that spends order of magnitude like $1,000 a year heating and cooling a home. It, it was obvious actually. Like once Tony and I got into it and actually we're looking at how could we modernize homes and apply technology and design? It was really obvious that this is a big problem. You know, half of homes energy went to heating and cooling, but yet, you know, kind of beige plastic design in the 1970s was still in, in charge. Didn't make any sense. But the initial pain that you detected or opportunity was coming from the consumer experience. Correct. Which is different than coming from... I don't know, concern about the planet or our precious resources. No, it or... turns out they're the same. Turns out they're the same. Ladies and gentlemen, this is not a setup, by the way. No, this is this is the yeah, key insight. Yeah, this is not a scripted conversation. No, Jason, this, this is, is the live key... as it comes. This is the insight. So there had been technology since the 1980s to program a thermostat to change temperature at certain times to save energy. Like it's nighttime, turn the heat down to save. It's very obvious. It's been that's been around a long time. It's been around literally since the 80s. But because the user interface was so bad, no one programmed the thermostat. And that was the fundamental tenet of why we started Nest. We we could build a beautiful product, that's obvious. But we could build a product that's easy to use, where people don't need to worry about programming it, and therefore will save energy automatically. That that was the key insight, and it is a user interface issue. It's a consumer insights issue, and it's an energy efficiency issue. It's the beauty of of how we built the company, it was a mission-first company and a product-first com- company at the same time. You know, if this was Reed Hoffman Masters of Scale, I think what we would now do is we would take a deep dive into how you built it and the challenges you faced along the way and, and things like that. And I think that's actually really interesting stuff, given that I'm coming at this from a little bit of a different angle. Indeed. Yeah, I don't want to blow the whole episode on that. No, right? I yeah. totally agree. Actually, yeah. and, and in fact... I'll draw a quick line. So we went from idea, how can we help people save energy at the home, to scale. 
where there's now tens of millions of thermostats in people's homes and we're saving tens of millions of kilowatt hours, tens of millions of megawatt hours every year. And it was easy. No stress. No, yeah, easy super ride, easy. Up and to the right the yeah, whole exactly. way. Yeah, exactly. Like I got all this gray hair because it was really easy. You know, it's all good. Incredible journey. But again, like going back to the core, building mission first companies that have high impact at scale was the kind of like, let's say like my big lesson, building Nest. And post-Nest is how can I empower others to do the same? Well, so one question I have for you, I guess, look, so so sticking with Nest for a moment is, so Dan Yates from Opower was a guest that we had on a, f- a few episodes back. And one of the questions I had for Dan was that I knew that he started Opower from a very mission-driven place, concerned about the planet. He was on this trip with his girlfriend at the time, who's now his wife. And I asked, I said, look, we know this, it was a financial success. We, we know how that story ended, but now... You know, you've exited, you stuck around for the integration, you've, you have had some time away, you have the benefit of hindsight, you can speak a little more freely, like, did it matter for the mission? And one of the things he said was that, I'm going to p- try to paraphrase, but it was essentially that it mattered some, and it was better than not doing it, but that he's got a higher bar this time around for mission in a more outsized way, I guess, Look at look at Nest with a similar filter because you also are out and gone and benefit of hindsight, et cetera. So, and actually, I mean, there's some similarities between the O Power business and the Nest business. Absolutely. Yeah. So, how do you feel about it? I agree with Dan in some in some respects. I think the growth of Nest and its integration to Google has brought in another layer of auxiliary businesses and kind of more general smart home things that may not tie to that core mission. That said, the mission is still at the core of the company and. I got an email from a Nest employee yesterday reaching out of, hey, like, would you be interested in meeting one of our partners who's an energy company in Colorado? Because like, that's still how they live and breathe every day. And yes, like the business has gone a lot of different directions, but they're still saving tens of millions of megawatt hours every year, order to magnitude power plant size impact with a thermostat. So it's still there, but yes, they've gone in a lot of other directions too, like home security and those kinds of things. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a more existential question, but do you worry about our ability to rein in our carbon problem in a capitalist society? No, actually, I don't. But it's required more than just business. Business is really savvy at chasing a target and generating shareholder returns or profits. Business needs some guide rails on kind of where to go. And I think things like a carbon price are one of those guide rails that would really push businesses in the right direction. And some businesses are already kind of heading in the right direction because they're assuming that the markets are going to change. But like things like a carbon price is like one of the biggest levers out there. Because once you realize that, hey, like your cost of goods go up or your cost of doing business goes up, you do business in different ways. I mean, traditionally, economics, it looks at GDP growth and and it's kind of growth without factoring in the natural resources that are utilized or harmed as as part of that growth. And even if you look at our public markets, I mean, quarter to quarter and the analysts and and what are they looking at, right? They're certainly not looking at, I mean, I guess with ESG, they're they're looking a little bit at like, or they're trying to. But, but mostly not. Like, yeah. like for the public markets, quarterly earnings are the most important thing. And I think that's a flawed system. I think like that there's gaps there. And I guess that's a very big statement to make. Like our capitalist society has is flawed. And that's why you need capitalism with guardrails or capitalism with regulation or capitalism with other factors that are important. But not purely market-based. Not purely market-based. But that yeah, said- which, like, is a, which is a very controversial stance. Or it's 
it's a lightning rod. So I'm not an economist, but talking to a lot of economists who've studied this issue way more than I have, there are market signals you can send that then push companies to do the right thing along their own path. And things like a carbon price are one of those. If it costs $50 a ton or $100 a ton or one day $1,000 a ton to emit CO2, you're not going to emit CO2. And in fact, you're probably going to find ways to to take CO2 out of the air as part of your day-to-day business because the stakes become high. It's like companies have gone out of their way to not pay taxes and like they've developed all these crazy offshore options and Ireland and Singapore options because they really don't want to pay those taxes. If you create the guardrails around emissions and doing the right thing around climate, companies will find the path to get there because they need to run their business. They know that and they'll do it within the constraints of the system. So looking back at Nest, were were there times along the way where business success and mission success were at odds? No, actually. There was a time where we had thought and kind of went down the path of, should we put some of our energy efficiency features, some of the more advanced ones in a subscription program, like Nestaware for our security products? And we didn't do it. And at the core, we said, hey, like things like energy efficiency should be something that everyone has access to. And if we make these features free and available to everyone, in the end, we'll sell more thermostats and it'll be a higher growth product and it's good for business too. And we made the right decision, but it was one like where we thought about it, but we never really made the right call. So the exit happened. You stuck around for... Almost five years. So I got, we sold the company five years ago and I exited officially this spring. So five years post-exit, it's a long time. Like Much like the Dan Yates story, I, I stayed around to help with the integration and to to kind of put it all within Google. And how did being part of a publicly traded company impact that mission aspect of the business, if at all? It didn't to, to most respects. I think, but Google's not the average publicly traded company. They have a very high tolerance for entering new businesses and waiting for results. So a lot of large scale businesses, and if you've had the chance yet, Talk to David Crane, who ran NRG. I would love to talk to yeah. David Crane. A, a lot of public companies don't have the tolerance for quarter-to-quarter variation. Google, fortunately, does. And because, frankly, because the ad business is so strong, they could stand to take some investments in other areas. And Nest was one of those other areas. So we got a lot of tolerance and a lot of time from Larry to kind of to grow and to run and to make investments and kind of without the kind of quarter-to-quarter analysis. And given that when you did exit, I mean, of course, it was it was life changing and you stuck around for the integration. It was also just a long run. So when you finally did step away, how were you feeling and what did you do? Mm. It's still hard. I mean, like when, when, when you've spent 10 years doing anything, you miss it. And I miss the people. I hired well over a thousand people into Nest over the years. And, you know, those are friendships that I continue to have. And you miss you miss the products and you you know you miss the brand but the stuff that we're working on now with insight is so important that it fills whatever vacuums or gaps exist we are so busy and doing so many important things that like i tend almost not even to realize that i'm missing anything else so what was the first step when you left did you just take some time and clear your head did you go walk in the woods kind of the opposite actually so my wife got sick so she she had a rare form of cancer, and I took a leave of absence from Google, and you know there's great paid family leave policy, so I could go do that. I took care of her, 
And at the same time, the two of us, as we were realizing how short life can be, realized that we need to spend a lot more time with things that are impactful. I don't know if I can ask this on the air, but how, how is she doing? She's doing great. She's doing great. Actually, not only has she recovered and is cancer free, but she's bounced back and is working harder than I've ever seen anyone work before. I think part of realizing that, hey, like you never know, even if you're in your 30s, how long you've got, make your time count. She actually recently joined a presidential campaign and is helping I her friend Pete. That. Her friend Pete running for president. Buddha judge. Buddha judge. Really good guy. Really, really great guy. And someone that I've had the privilege to get to meet over the years. Yeah, him and Swathi have been friends since college. So not only is she doing great, but she's she's in it in it deep these days. And so tell me about Insight. What are you guys doing? And, and also just how did it come about? So we are doing everything we can to drive impact in the world. And I'm going to use the word, word impact kind of lowercase i. We're not one of these types of family offices or investors that is kind of trying to over-engineer and over-measure everything. What we try to do is we try to find great entrepreneurs who are mission-oriented, who are on a mission, and want to give them the tools, whether it's financial, operational, strategic help, to accomplish their mission. And we do that not just in terms of- I witnessed that as I walked in here. You were meeting with the team that you had backed. Yes. In, in, in the it, office it, living room. It's what we do every day. It's what we do every day. Either we're meeting with teams. Sure there weren't task rabbits that you hired just to stand in <laughs> and, and pretend to be founders? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny you should say that. No, they're, no they're, they're definitely real. So we do this every day. We don't just do it for people building companies, but we do it for entrepreneurs who have a nonprofit they want to build or a movement they want to create or you know, an aspiring politician. It turns out like someone who wants to get involved in politics and policy looks a lot like an entrepreneur. Like they're, you know, they've got a strong point of view and a mission they want to run on and they need to go put together a team and, you know, a platform and finance and hiring and PR. It looks a lot like building a company. And when Swathi and I realized this, like, hey, like it's very similar in terms of the techniques and the skills to build a movement, to build a nonprofit, to build a company, I think we could put these all together on one roof. And that's what Insight is. And so is it is it one vehicle? Is it separate vehicles for each? Yeah, so we've got lots of different vehicles, but we tend not to think about how many vehicles there are. And it's not really the important thing for the entrepreneurs to think about either. Those are things that we have to do to work within the kind of the laws and the regulations. We like to think of it as, as one organization and kind of our vehicle for impact. And we've got all the tools necessary on the back end to make sure that we can do things. And when I came in today, I mean, you were meeting with a fitness team. So, and when I think of you, I think of you as a climate guy. So what's the North Star for how to determine what types of projects Insight gets involved in? Yeah. So we don't have like a litmus test on on impact or on the mission. What we want to see is we want to see founders who are super driven behind a mission that has impact. And whether that's a health-related impact or climate-related impact or social justice-related impact. And we want to give them the tools necessary to do that. And it would be too much hubris on my part to say, hey, like, no, we'll only back entrepreneurs who want to take carbon out of the air. Albeit, like, I, I could do that. But there are so many different things out there in, in terms of ways of accomplishing impact. Like, I don't want to impose my value system on other people's missions. So essentially you're like an impact generalist. Is that what you're saying? An impact generalist. I am an impact generalist. This is a good way of thinking about it. That said, like let's call it 70% of the things we do are climate related. 
based on my interest in my network. I felt like when I came in here today, I caught you cheating or something. No, 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 not at all, actually. <laughs> not at all. Like, we have the whole spectrum. Like We've invested in medical-related con- companies. We're invested in some oncology-related things. We're, we're in nutrition-related items. We're in women's health-related items. We're in a lot of different climate-related areas. We are not just a climate office, but it is a bulk of what we do. I feel like the climate issue is, it, it's not that these other issues aren't important, but it's that if we don't solve the climate issue, then like there's this, you know, the, it's like the water's rising towards the ceiling kind of thing. That's right. And if, and if we drown, then, you know, our lack of education or systemic racism or poverty or, you know, just, just go down the line, like they're not going to matter because we're not going to be here. Right. And, and so for me, I also have multiple interests. I also care about multiple issues, but I can't find it in myself to, I feel like climate is such a big one and we're so far behind the eight ball that like I need to be laser focused and I don't give myself the luxury to focus on anything else. So how do you think about it? I agree with a lot of what you you said, actually. I think from my, my time and my mental bandwidth, I spend most of my personal time in my, in my mental bandwidth on climate. I, I agree with you. Like it's hard to focus on much else when you lose all of your coastal areas and your agriculture because of climate change and global unrest and you know, you know Syrian refugees because of climate, like it escalates out of control very quickly. That said, I'm fortunate enough to have enough resources at our disposable that like we don't need to exclusively focus on climate. Like we don't back every pitch we get, but we back a lot of the pitches we get. Like we don't say no to things because of lack of resources because. You know, like that's just not the situation we're in, fortunately. So I think if any listener has a pitch, there's a high percentage chance that Matt will give you money if you just send it to Insight. Is that no? I'm joking. We we get we we see order of magnitude like ten to fifteen pitches a week, uh, and we don't we don't back all of those. We back all of the superstar entrepreneurs that are mission oriented. We back a lot. We probably do twenty five or thirty deals a year. And. When I've been making the rounds, and and I have to admit, I feel I was talking to Evan about this before this episode that it does feel like I've accidentally overweighted to finance early in my climate journey. So I'm going to have to mix it up a bit. But what I find is when I talk to finance types, especially venture capitalists, that they're allergic to the word concessionary and they're allergic to the word impact because it, no, it's a financial vehicle and it generates returns and it's like, it's, you know, market-based and, and it also does some good. Right. But when I heard you quote in the New York times, what, what you were talking about is that, well, like, you know, your money's not going to do you much good if we're all underwater. Right. right? And which but, is but, true. It's true. <laughs> but when I hear that, that, that sounds pretty concessionary. I would disagree. <laughs> I, I think I'm taking a bigger picture point of view though. If you think about climate change and the impact it has on communities, on, on the economy, it is epic. And yes, you could look at maximizing your micro gains, like, like your micro gains, like the investment you make today, like I'm going to invest in this social media company and make a lot of money. That's, that's great. But at the macro point of view, if we do not invest in climate change, the insurance industry is going to get clobbered and the real estate industry is going to get clobbered and the agriculture industry is going to get clobbered and the global economic impact is catastrophic and you will lose more money in the long term because you did not invest in climate change. So I think it's about being more big picture than being small picture. And so, I mean, you've got a philanthropic arm and, and, and obviously, if, I mean, philanthropy is philanthropy. You're not expecting a return on that. But but what about the the investing side? How do you think about those returns? So 
we again we have a spectrum of tools available to us and this is where we've we've learned from the best out there and apply it to the way we do things at insight so we have a vehicle that makes traditional seed investments in companies like a ventures arm but we also make investments from our foundation like a foundation has a balance sheet and usually what foundations do with their balance sheet is they give it to an investment manager and they buy stocks and bonds we do that too but we take a lot of our foundation balance sheet and we invest it in high impact high risk investments in climate so Sarah Carney and Matthew Nordan were both yes. guests on here. That sounds uh, a lot of, like what, what indeed. they do. Again, learning from the best. Sarah and Matthew were some of the influences on in how we do this. So we take things on our balance sheet. So they do PRIs, which are investments made in lieu of grants. So we, we take our balance sheet, so our, our the corpus of our, in our foundation, and we invest that. It's called mission-related investments. And we still make our grants too. So it's not like we're double counting. My thought is, is, the foundation money is there for impact, whether it's a grant or the balance sheet we should be using both for the same. How do you think about, so you talked about some of the direct investing that you're doing. What percentage of your philanthropic allocations are investing versus pure philanthropy? Ends up being about half and half. So we do order of magnitude four to five million in grants a year and about four to five million in investments a year. So, so it ends up being about the same. And how do you think about that grant side? There's a, there's a lot of places that could use the money. Climate is, oh, and I know you're not just focused on climate, but if you just say climate is one example, it's dramatically underfunded. And I, I mean, I heard a stat, I think it's like this, it's like 18 foundationers are responsible for 80% of climate giving. Yes, the community is way too small. Yeah, and there's a reason, I mean, you know, people, people knock the NGOs, for example, for not being more collaborative, but it's like, if everybody's fighting for scraps, then it's just survival of the fittest. Yeah, it's a really sad place that there are so few climate funders and we all work together. That's the good news is actually we all communicate and collaborate and we work together. On the funders on, side, on not the funders, on the, on the funders side. side. Yeah. Uh, actually, we're working, we're working to get the fundees to do the same thing. The, the grantees are, 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 we're forcing them to work together at this point because we're like, you're raising money from all the same people. So you might as well, you guys need to work together. I haven't done the tour yet. So those 18 foundations, actually, it'd be great at some point just to talk about who the key people are so I can kind of get up to speed and, and the list get is some not that long. Yeah. Right, literally put it on one page and then you could talk to everybody. And that's a problem. Like it shouldn't be possible to, to take a month or two and talk to all of the major funders in climate. That's a real big problem. I agree. So when you talk about the the grantees, is there a profile? Is it all over the map? Or is it, is it the upstart? Is it the big established ones? I mean, ha, like, are there, are there certain causes that are either ones that you have a weakness for or ones that you're allergic to? So we don't have a litmus test around what the impact they're trying to seek. We're, we look for impact and we look for it mission. Need, it needs to be stuff that you believe in though, I assume. Not necessarily, actually. So we look for early stage. So like either like we're the first funders or the second, like very early, like where our money enables them to go accomplish their dreams. And it's more stage specific than area specific. That's it. Like, again, like 75% of our grantees are climate related, but that's not exclusively what we do. It's, it's more about the stage where a half million dollar check or a quarter million dollar check could go a really long way for this organization. The difference between existing and not existing is generally the way we, we see our money. Like we don't usually pile on to a large scale organization because frankly, our impact is low. Like for EDF, for example, if we wrote them a quarter million dollar check, it doesn't make a difference to them. Are you allowed to talk about any of the projects that, that you've participated in that you're particularly excited about? Absolutely. So one of my favorites is an organization called Carbon 180, formerly called the Center for Carbon Removal. I'm recording with Noah 
Thursday. Awesome. So this is yeah. this is great. So you'll, you'll get to meet Noah and understand why why we backed Noah and, and Gianna to, to build the center. So the two of them started out of Berkeley and had a really bold idea to change the conversation around climate change and climate mitigation. And at the time, the area they that, you know, carbon removal and utilization was one of the most overlooked, underfunded and, and borderline toxic areas of the climate community. And their thesis was, is there's no way to get to zero by 2050 without carbon removal. So we have to change the conversation about it. And five years later, now they've done that. So like they're the perfect case study of what we look for with Insight. Another organization that, that we work with really closely on the climate side, and they're not exclusively climate, but I'd say they very closely mapped to kind of the Insight philosophy is Cyclotron Road. Juan is coming on in a couple of weeks. Soon to be called Activation Energy. I did not know that. Yes. Yeah, so they're scaling. Breaking news. They're, they're scaling. They're, they're a great organization. So they look for mission-oriented scientists and technologists and enable those folks to go build companies. And again, like let's call it 75% of the companies that come out of the program are climate-related, but they don't exclusively work on climate. They work on things that are really hard and hard to fund and enable entrepreneurs to go pursue those missions. And so in those organizations, like I know in Carbon 80, you've got the chairman title. How does that manifest? What What are you actually doing beyond capital yeah. with Carbon 180 as an example. So it's actually a lot like a board chair would do for a for-profit company. I help the executive team build the company, align the strategy, you know, what are things we should be doing? How should we be marketing our mission? You know, like how can we be changing the conversation, networking them with other organizations, a lot like a chairman of the board would do. In the early days, let's call it like four or five years ago when we were first starting the organization, it was like basic company building. It looked a lot like building a startup. Even though you know it's a 501c3, it looks a lot like a company. You know, certainly feels like a founder when I talk to him. That, that's the kind. Of, so that's those are the kind of folks we look for. Like, and that's when I say like we look for. Alan does too, obviously. Right. Yeah. So that's you know, part of what we've realized with Insight is there are mission oriented founders in all industries in all areas, and there happens to be a lot of early stage capital on the for-profit venture side, but there is not a lot of early stage seed capital outside of that. And that is the niche that we filled in spades with Insight. And the last bucket we haven't talked too much about just from an Insight standpoint is just the political one. So you talked about Pete Buttigieg, but what types of things are you guys doing in Washington and how does that manifest? So a broad set of stuff. So on the policy side, We've often looked for what are the overlooked areas in climate or in, in, in other areas that are super high impact and need government assistance to get going. And carbon removal is one of those. It's not in anyone's inherent business interest to take CO2 out of the air. But if the government's going to give you $50 a ton credit for doing it, all of a sudden you're like, oh, look, there's an opportunity here. And now investment has spurred. We, we passed this 45Q credit. Isn't it in the hydrocarbon company's interest to take CO2 out of the it, air? It is now. So like, <laughs> and also now they get paid to do it. And they can keep emitting. Yeah. Well, if you tie the two things together, I haven't done this math specifically, but what I've been told is that with direct air capture and enhanced oil recovery, this is where you take the CO2 to the air and use the CO2 to kind of go through deep wells to get your oil. You actually could sink more oil in the well, or more CO two in the well than that oil will release when it's when it's combusted. Now I haven't done this math, but talking to experts and some scientists who who do this full time, like Julio Friedman, who you should also meet with. I've talked to Julio. I've not met him in person, yeah. but it's another yeah. one you probably but should have on the show. Yeah. Julio, if you're listening, 
I'm going to find you. <laughs> so like, you talk to like folks like Dr. Friedman. You end up getting to a place where you have carbon neutral fuel, which is a really big deal. And I, I get like, like there's probably a large segment of the environmental community, which would, would kind of crucify me for saying this. But we need as many carbon neutral solutions or carbon negative solutions as possible as soon as possible. And if it means we get big oil on board, then I'm on board. Right. Like we need everybody pulling on these oars super hard to get towards the, the the goal of zero by by 2050. So bring that back around though. So you had started to talk about 45Q, but what, so, okay, so so we need that, but what are you actually doing with, with Insight in DC to bring that about? Wide variety stuff. So we helped sponsor organizations that helped write 45Q. Do you work with ClearPath? We do work with ClearPath. Okay. Yeah, Rich, Rich Powell was a guest. Rich is a good friend. <laughs> it's not published yet, but it, it will be. Yeah, Rich is a great guy. Assuming Rich approves it, which I know he's gonna. Yeah, Rich is a really good guy and they, they do great work there. We work with organizations like ClearPath, like Carbon 180, to then take this important work and and kind of educate politicians on what can be done. And then we also provide direct capital, some people call it hard money, to new politicians who are entering the arena themselves. And how do you determine which ones are worthy? I don't usually have a litmus test for anything. I'm looking for great talent, people who are mission-oriented and align with the values of their district. And what looks like, let's call it a progressive person in San Francisco, looks very different for what's going to be a great leader and representative in, let's call it rural Illinois. But what are the tenets that they have in common that resonate with you? Because if it's just values for their district, what if their district has values that are like 180 degrees from your values? It turns out things like you know having clean air to breathe and clean water to drink are universal values. So you're talking about other issues beyond those but people who care about that. Indeed. Yeah, so like the I have my personal beliefs on a lot of things but again like I don't want to impose my hubris on other people. Like that's you know that's that's not for me to do. Like when we back someone in Illinois or Ohio, we want to have someone who's going to provide great service and representation for those folks there. And it turns out things like clean water and clean air are universal values. Like no one wants to say, hey, like I want to wake up every day and drink dirty water and get sick from breathing dirty air. So I want to bring it back around. You talked about how you do a number of things with your capital, but that the most pressing issue in your mind is climate. And therefore, that's what gets the lion's share of your time. Did I hear that right? You did. Yes. Okay. Can we talk about that? Well, there's two things I want to talk about there. One is I want your take on the climate crisis, where we are what it's going to take to get out of it, what our prospects are, the highest impact things we can do. So that conversation, then I want to bring it back around and talk about your time and what you're actually doing. We talked a little bit about the policy, but just it'd be great to get a fuller picture. Yep. So like my quick overview of the kind of, it's called the state of the world. It's funny, like state of the world, literally, is that we are at like the 11th hour, maybe 1130 at this point. And we have very little time to enact serious change, but we still have that opportunity. And Again, like I'm not a climate scientist. Do you know any great ones I should talk to on the pod? Ooh, that is a good question. I do, but I'll have to get back to you on those. We're so overweighted on investor types. Yeah, yeah. We want to talk to some scientists yeah. in the lab that actually know their shit yeah. with the science. There's a couple of good folks at like NRDC that I'd recommend talking to. I'll get you some names afterwards. But anyways, it's yeah. it's 1130. Yes. We still have time. And we still have some time, but yeah. not much time. Yeah. And that's why I think this, let's call it like this moment in time, this moment in history is one where we'll look back as the pivotal moment. And fortunately, the will of the people is there. And for the first time in history, one of the most dominant things that gets voters to the polls is climate. 
people realize that we're at this kind of dire moment. And I introduced you to Nathaniel at Environmental Voter Project. In, indeed. He's, he's identified 10.1 million who care about the environment that aren't at the polls yet. That's true. This is true. So we're at this moment. And most people realize what we're at the moment. And like, there's this time to act. And when I say time to act, this is not the time for small change. We need to make catastrophic, significant changes to how we do business, to how the economy works, to how we create energy, or it will be too late. But we have this time. And my hope is that folks realize this and don't squander this opportunity because you may not get another chance like this for thousands of years. So just like, I guess, just a rapid fire thing, just to get a sense of, of how you feel. So what, what's the role and responsibility of consumers in that equation? The biggest thing consumers need to do is vote for people who are going to do the right thing on climate. There's individual decisions you can make, like, do you buy an electric car or you know, do you buy a Hummer? Do you get a Nest? Right. Do you, do you get a Nest? Do you start to... Do those matter in the aggregate? They do. Absolutely. Like if, again, if every home in America has an energy efficient thermostat, whether they're Nest or another energy efficient thermostat, we will save a lot of energy. Transportation sector is another enormous one, right? If every consumer and every business in America moves towards low emissions vehicles or zero emissions vehicles, it's going to make a huge difference. I'm talking to Saul Griffith later this week. Oh, cool. Excellent. And one of the things I want to dig into with him is he's a big like electrify, electrify everything guy. I want someone just to walk me through like what that actually is. There's a whole chat. I I will probably not agree with everything he says because there's some things that still cannot be electrified. I'm an investor in actually an electric airplane company. Right, electric. Indeed. But it's still very early and it's still very hard. And I think it's going to be a very long time before we don't have liquid fuels in airplanes. But that goes to the other point is like this time is is now. The time is dire. We need to take as many shots on goal as possible up our R&D funding so that we could have electric airplanes in the future. But maybe we need to move towards hy- you know hybrid planes today or hydrogen powered planes. Like there's other technologies we can apply to the problem. Is, is that government that would step up on the funding side? I think or? a lot of it will need to be government because mm-hmm. the, the levels we're talking about are not things that private industry or philanthropy could do. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're talking about like Apollo mission levels or more. Mm-hmm. Tens of billions of dollars a year need to move towards climate mm-hmm. or it will be too late. And you talked about it before, but on the policy side, it sounds like carbon tax is the outsized impact. It is an enormous do. lever on the economy, on business, on consumer behavior. Does it matter how it's structured or just any price is high, the it higher does, the it, better? It does matter how it's structured. Like some ways are, are, are easier to understand. And the more you move upstream, the easier it is for, for, built, for businesses to run. But the big, the big lever is it changes behavior. It changes business behavior and changes consumer behavior. Like, would you buy the Hummer that gets eight miles per gallon if it costs $20 a gallon for gas? You wouldn't. You were like, oh, I'm going to use this, this new alternative fuel that's $3 a gallon that's, that's made using bioproducts. Or I'll have an electric car that costs $1.50 equivalent a gallon, right? Right now, it's still too easy to rely on high emissions fuels and high emissions energy because for for decades, for 100 plus years, we've effectively been subsidizing it. So what would you say then to the people, and it's a large amount of people that would say that like, it, you know, sure it would help and sure it could be a high leverage thing, but we will never have the political will to get that through. I think at this point, we're, we're running out of time and we have to. Like, that's true. But the, so, yeah. But th- both of those statements can be true. That's true. Both of those statements can be true. So, the thing that I've seen that are kind of, let's call it the best for consumer will and for political will on this is like, yes, like you have some sort of carbon price that's high upstream. 
but you also have a rebate or a dividend or a credit that you give to every person. So like the citizens climate lobby type of proposal? Where, I'm not familiar with this one. Yeah, so they are, it's revenue neutral and uh, they're taking uh, dividending it out to yeah, consumers. Yeah, yes, exactly. Like a, and it's, bi- and it's, it's a bipartisan approach. Yeah, well. it, yeah, I, I, yeah, it has been the one that I have seen that has the most political will behind it. Yeah. Because let's say like you're a middle-class family in America, the increased cost of carbon may cost you $400 more or $500 more per year. But if you get a $1,000 credit, you actually are end up being revenue positive as a family. So do, does who you and I vote for matter for getting a carbon tax pushed through? It does. It does. Like there, there are folks on the right side of the political spectrum who will never vote for anything that has a tax attached to it, mm-hmm. right? Purely because they don't like the word tax. Mm-hmm. And this is one where like we could call it whatever we want, but like there's other way, there's, there are other ways of, of naming and branding this. Mm-hmm. But in the end of the day, like we do need to increase prices for things that are emitting CO2 and methane to the air. Okay, so we talked about carbon tax. You talked about innovation and R&D. I guess one question in the innovation and R&D bucket is what's the role of breakthrough technology versus scaling what we've got? We need both. So like, again, like we need every shot on goal that we possibly get our hands on. Mm-hmm. We've got really great technology and renewables today. We got to scale the hell out of those. Mm-hmm. Like we need renewables to be as, as, as large proportion as they can on the grid. But there are things holding that back, right? Indeed. Like we need like better storage technologies. And that's one like where we don't have all the answers yet. Mm-hmm. So like, that's why I said like we need both. We need to scale the things that we have, but we also need to make a lot of very large bets on new technology. Some will pan out and some won't. That could have significant impact on climate. Storage being one of those zero emissions. Nuclear energy is another area. Mm-hmm. Things like CO2 capture and utilization is another area. Mm-hmm. There are lots of areas where... Not only are there opportunities for government scale involvement and innovation, but it's also an area where, like thinking back to the New Deal in in the U.S., where that innovation also spurs massive economic opportunity and job creation, much like we had coming out of World War II, which is exciting for everybody. That's something that gets Republicans, Democrats, independents all out of bed, like you know, going to large scale mobilization of an entire economy and a nation project like the Apollo missions in the 60s. That's a really exciting thing for everybody. So we need more innovation, both deploying what we've got and and breakthroughs. We also need carbon tax. Any other really big levers? Agriculture. It's one that folks don't often talk about. But ag is like a quarter of emissions. There's a lot we could do to help farmers manage soil better, move to more perennial crops, livestock, like cattle and, and other livestock like sheep and lamb enormous emitters of, of greenhouse gases. And there are actually relatively simple things we could do to help farmers drop emissions really rapidly, like changing the feedstock in livestock. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of research coming out of like UC Davis in California where applying types of seaweed to cattle feed drops emissions by half. So is that a business? Some of these could be businesses, absolutely. Like some of these will be business creating new feedstocks for farmers, but some of them are going to be political movements. You know, this, again, this is where government can get involved really well, like by applying the right rebates and subsidies and incentives for farmers to do the right thing. They'll they'll move the industry over very quickly to get those new incentives and then to drive emissions down. For anyone out there listening who is really concerned about this problem and wants to help, but isn't necessarily in a position where they can just like not have a livelihood or someone that maybe has a livelihood and doesn't want to give it up but has some philanthropic, you know, they, they want to do some supporting through philanthropy, but they don't know how to suss out what's going to be highest impact. I guess maybe talk to each of those audiences, like what should they do? 
So one, like on the let's call it on the career job side, the clean economy jobs are some of the fastest growing jobs in America, probably like second behind like healthcare and nursing. There's been a ton of job creation and economic development in the clean energy economy. So I think they're like if you if you're if you want to get involved and want to get make make a difference with like how you spend your time every day, seek opportunities in the in the kind of the clean economy. There's a ton out there. On the other side, I think whether you're donating $10 or donating thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars, finding organizations that you feel passionate about that have strong missions and where you could spend not only you know investing your money, but also some of your time and volunteer your time, like much like we do. Like inside, like not only are we, we writing checks, but like we're volunteering our time to these organizations to help them scale. Like there's things that we all could do to help these these organizations grow. In that same New York Times article I mentioned earlier, you were, I don't know if you were complaining, but I'll use the word complaining, that there's not a lot of interest from Silicon Valley in investing in this area. I mean, to me, I feel like that's rational given the current structure of how those funds are organized and the return profiles and their fiduciary responsibility to limited partners and things like that. So and to the extent that there's overlap on the Venn diagram, they are doing this investing, it's just few and far between. And in the areas that there is overlap, oftentimes it's it's like traditional investing with a greenish tint, but it's not really putting decarbonization front and center. I guess first, do you agree with that assessment? And then as a follow-up, what do we do? Like, how do we get more resource and what what is Silicon Valley's role in that or or not? Yeah, I, I agree with you on, on the whole. And I think part of that New York Times article you're mentioning is me trying to shine the mirror. So Silicon Valley and Silicon Valley Venture used to be about making bold technology bets. And when Venture was coming up as a asset class in like the 70s and 80s and even into the 90s, they were taking really bold bets on technology that were really high risk. And somewhere between the dot-com bust of you know 2000 and the internet kind of surgence of, of where we are today, people have forgot about the roots of venture. And they see it more of like a super high return asset class that doesn't necessarily take a lot of risk. And I, I think part of part of that is the maturing of an industry, but also shows that, hey, like, there are there are more ways of skinning this cat, and I think for LPs like large pension funds, universities, the folks that usually back venture capital, they need also have they have a fiduciary duty, but they also have a duty to their rep, who they're representing. Like, what good is a pension fund if we're not going to be around to spend that money, right? Like, if we're not going to be around to retire, I'd like to see more and more LPs push their their investments, their their venture venture investments. To, to make bigger bets because those opportunities are out there. It just requires us to work a little bit harder. There's a, there's a lot of easier money in the internet. You got to work a little harder for, for some of these other opportunities, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. So what do you think of the term concessionary as it relates to capital and returns? I think it's less about concessionary and returns, but more about stage. So you can make very high risk investments and also have very high return, but you may also hit some zeros. And I think there needs to be different asset classes and different investment vehicles for the different stages of capital. Mm -hmm. And especially I think about like, let's call it super high technology risk. This is where an area where like foundation capital could come in and make a big difference. Mm -hmm. And like some of that will, will make returns. And if you think about it from a philanthropic pr perspective and there's what hundreds of billions of dollars of foundation capital out there, that money is, 
there for granting an impact. So why not take some bold bets and let's say you get a one X on return on your, on your MRIs. You're a brilliant philanthropist. Like there's not too many grants that get a one X return on your grant. Usually you give the money away. It doesn't come back. So it's essentially reframing expectations and reminding people that if it's a philanthropic investment, philanthropic investments don't typically generate return. Right. And so the return is gravy on a philanthropic investment that otherwise would have just been giving it away. That's right. There's different stages of money. Like just, just like, like when you make a investment, like a public investment, like a Mm -hmm. small cap or a mid cap or a large cap investment, there are different expectations of what those things will return. Venture has kind of become one big bucket or there's like venture and growth. There needs to be more granularity in terms of all those different buckets in the earlier stages. But in that article, it was a little bit of like kind of complaining about the existing crew isn't more active, but that's not what I'm hearing from you now. No, no, no. The existing crew is not very active. No, but but you're not necessarily advocating that they should be. No, I, I think I am. I think what I have to say specifically is that they have to work a little harder to make bold investments in climate Whereas you could work, you could be a little easier in, on the internet side. Do you also think then, I mean, when you say LPs pushing them, is it essentially LPs being okay with more science risk and longer time horizons? Sometimes. Yeah, it could be. For the greater good. Well, and also for the, you know, for the folks that they represent, like most LPs represent universities or pension funds or governments. Mm-hmm. These folks have a duty to their citizens and their, in, in, into their shareholders. I think if anything, like our generation will be driving this change again, like I'll, I'll speak very candidly. Like I think there's an enormous opportunity to make money in climate and things that make a huge difference on climate change, but you may have to work a little harder to find them. I assume that, I mean, given the world that you and I come from, there's a couple of different profiles of people from that world that come to me. And I imagine they're coming to you as well. Either VCs that I would describe as climate curious or, the other one is people that maybe work in software, whether it's as an engineer or a product manager or some other fun, I mean, it could be in sales, but who say, gosh, this is really hanging over my head, but but I don't know where to start. And because there's not that many of us that have come from that Silicon Valley world over into climate work, it's like, I, feel, I mean, you more than me, but you're like kind of like the token visible representative that, that it's like a bridge, like someone that they feel comfortable with that speaks their language, but that's now like switch sides, essentially. It's, it's one yeah. of the important roles that we play. Yeah. So what, what do you tell each of those people? When, when an Apple engineer comes to you and says that, what do you tell them? When a venture capitalist from Sand Hill Road comes to you and says that, what do you tell them? It's never too early to get started. What I hear from a lot of folks is like, hey, like once I'm retired, I'll get involved in impact or I'll, I'll start doing philanthropy, whatever kind of size and scale they're able to do. One, we don't have time for that. Like we need, we need the impact now. And two, like building good habits and being a good role model for your children starts now. Like it doesn't start when you retire. So like building a good culture around doing well in the world and, you know, and having a positive impact starts in your 20s, starts in your teens. Like my wife and I, we started volunteering on the Gore campaign in 2000 before we were even eligible to vote because we believed that what he represented, especially around climate, was critical. And that's something we did as, as teenagers. So like, it's not something you, you need to do and wait till you're in your 70s to get involved. So you married in. your high school sweetheart? Kind of. You, 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 <laughs> you can say that. Yeah, you can say that. We, we've not been dating since we were in high school. Yeah, but we've known each other a very long time. Like, my point being, like, positive habits around, positive, around, around impact don't need to start when you're retired. Start as soon as possible. And that's the advice I give everybody. 
So, so the people that are still f- not focused on this and are financially independent and are continuing to optimize for creating more wealth, do you judge those people? And is that fair to do so or, or each to their own? How, how do you think about that? Do they have a duty? I think so. I, I think, again, like speaking again about capitalism, capitalism isn't fair. And there's a lot of luck involved. And once you realize that it's not fair and there's a lot of luck involved, you do have a responsibility and a duty to basically effectively give your money away to the greater good because it's not a fair system. And because you 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 were born on the right side of the, of the tracks to educated parents, you had these opportunities. And once you realize that there's luck and, and every step of the way and privilege every step of the way, you realize it actually is your your duty. You have to do it. It's not It's not because you were special. It's because you got really lucky and you were born to the right parents at the right time in the right place and had the right jobs and those kind of things. Yeah, it's amazing how many people that's all true for, but that think it's just... It was their skill. Yeah, exactly. They're no, skill and good luck. So. Yeah, again, as you said, like... I know I was lucky. Skill could be an accelerant around that stream, but there's so much luck and privilege that put you in that fast lane that 99% of the world never got to do. So it's your duty to do the right thing. And last question, I've been asking this of every guest, if, if you had $100 billion and you could allocate it towards anything to maximize its impact on the climate fight, where would it go and how would you allocate it? So I'm a big believer in portfolio theory. And like much like we do today with Insight, we don't have $100 billion, but we try to spread, spread it amongst a lot of different initiatives. I would do the same. And like, especially given how tough the climate fight is, we need all the shots on goal we could get. So I would back everything like and today i have the i have the fortune to be able to back things that are early and make very catalytic investments in early stage things but it's hard for me to follow that catalytic investment like when cyclotron road needs 10 million dollars to scale their next site i can't help them with that i can help them raise it but i can't do it myself if i had 100 billion dollars we'd have cyclotron roads all over the world so i guess then that can be my my last question which is a follow-up to that question which is that you and Chwati are the sole LPs in your vehicle. And as you just said, you can't follow on and there's a shortage of capital. So how do you think about those trade-offs between control and not polluting the mission versus just having more means to have more of an outsized impact? I think we've found really good partners that could follow on. I think that's been our that's been our strategy and our solution to that. And like once you've identified really good partners that could take it the next next step that rely on you for the early stage that then carry on the next, like you realize that like there's an ecosystem around you and we don't need to, to own each step of that journey. So you're pretty happy with, with your perch. I love like. what we do. And like, one, we have a great time doing it, but we are, we are, we also like, it's catalytic for these founders. Like when we backed Noah and Gianna for carbon 180, they had an idea and they were in school. And for someone to come in and write them a half million dollar check with an idea is catalytic, right? Anything that I didn't ask you or any parting words for our listeners? I, I love what you're doing, Jason. Like one, like th- thank you for doing it. Like when, when you and I started talking last year around how can you make a difference in climate? I think helping folks chronicle the, their journey is a really big deal. Which was a, a cold email that you replied to. So, uh, so thank you for that. But this, this, but this is still true. Like folks could email me and I respond. That's, that's part of being a philanthropist is about the good of people. And I got a lot of inbound and we were trying to reply to almost everything. Thank you for what you do. And, and two, I think everyone needs to get involved. Like, like 
at whatever scale they could do. It's never too early to get involved and you vote. They got to vote your conscience. And like when people say like, oh, the candidates are all about the same. I'm going to stay home. Uh, that's pretty much the worst vote they can make. Well, Matt, this was a fascinating episode. I learned a lot. And I also want to thank you for what you do. Uh, you, I actually bring you up quite a lot in my travels because uh, I think that you're a role model of sorts in terms of both the work you're doing and the impact you're making and the way that you've structured things with Insight. Uh, Runkeeper wasn't the same magnitude of win as Nest, so I don't necessarily have the same resource, but I think philosophically super well aligned. Right. Indeed. And likely, like, like you mentioned, like it's never too early to start and you've made early investments and early grants. And like, those are the kind of things like getting the habits formed and getting that process going is, is the most important step and getting others to do it too. And you're doing that in spades now. So like, thank you. We'll keep up the great work. Thank you for the support. And thank you for coming on the show. My pleasure. Hey everyone, Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on my climate journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey, you can visit us at myclimatejourney.co. Note, that is .co, not .com. Someday we'll get the .com, but right now, .co. You can also find me on Twitter at jjacobs22, where I would encourage you to share your feedback on the episode or suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear. And before I let you go, if you enjoyed the show, Please share an episode with a friend or consider leaving a review on iTunes. The lawyers made me say that. Thank you. Thank you.